0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. What I'm going to do now is continue and I am going to read my paper on atonement. So, this is New Testament theology in regard to Hebrews. Throughout this letter, he describes Christ's atoning work directly and indirectly in relation to his high priestly office. A vivid example is Hebrews 2, verse 17. Will you turn with me to Hebrews 2, verse 17? And you read, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The word atonement in Greek is, here it is, for all the Greek scholars. iluskes and that is the rough breathing mark here that's the word for atonement and we're going to deal with that word quite a bit translators of this Greek term have resorted to a choice of words that range from atonement in the New Revised Standard Version and in the NIV to expiation, which you find in the RSV, in the New English Bible, New Jerusalem Bible, the Revised English Bible, and the Living New Testament. And propitiation, which is found in the New King James Version, and in the NASB. Good. Of these three, atonement is a general term, expiation appears more frequently and propitiation less frequently. Here are short definitions of these three terms. Atonement is commonly defined as a reparation of a broken relationship that exists between God and His people, but which is restored through the death and resurrection of His Son Jesus Christ. Now, you can't argue with that statement. May I read it again to be exact? Here it is. Atonement is commonly defined as a reparation of a broken relationship that exists between God and His people, but which is restored through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. No liberalism in that. Expiation. Now, we continue. Expiation means that sin, which is a failure to keep one's obligations to God is covered by the vicarious blood of Christ. No? That's all right too. Now propitiation. Okay, one more. Expiation means that sin, which is a failure to keep one's obligations to God, is covered by the vicarious blood of Christ. Any quibbles with that? Okay, fine. We move on. Propitiation refers to sin that arouses God's anger which Christ, through His death on the cross, has removed. Now, have your choice. Atonement, expiation, or propitiation. Only propitiation speaks about God's anger and Christ's suffering the penalty and removing the curse. Right? Okay, now we continue. It reveals propitiation. It reveals that Christ, by taking sin upon himself, has averted God's wrath from his people. But it does not specify how God's favor was gained. Critics often object to the term propitiation because it implies divine wrath they argue instead that God is a God of love so if you are a <clears throat> theologian who, say, who says God is a God of love then obviously you're not taken in by that word propitiation and you say expiation or the general term atonement Charles Harold Dodd D-O-D-D passed away, by the way, in 1975, he was not known for conservatism. No, I didn't say he was liberal. I only said he's not known for his conservatism. He wrote a relatively brief study on the atonement and concluded that even though in classical Greek the term helaskestai means propitiate, in the Septuagint and the New Testament, it signifies expiratum, and not propitiation he wrote this in his book the Bible and the Greeks published in 1935 continuing with respect to Hebrews 2.17 he writes Christ is represented as performing an act whereby men are delivered from the guilt of their sin not whereby God is propitiated And that also taken from his book, the Bible and the Greeks. (coughs) Continuing. He implies that in Luke 18.13, Romans 3.25 and Hebrews 2.17, together with 1 John 2.2 and 4.10, where Helaschus' thigh and his cognates occur, the accent should fall on God's love and mercy and not on His wrath. However, both Leon Morris of Melbourne, Australia, and Roger Nicole, now of Orlando, Florida, for decades he taught at Gordon-Conwell, Reformed theologian, plus good friend of mine, have effectively refuted his study by pointing out numerous inadequacies in his ex- examination, that is, <clears throat> the examination of the Greek and Hebrew text used by... C.H. Dodd. They prove that Dodd, citing Old and New Testament passages, fails to examine these passages in their respective contexts that prove the presence of God's wrath. Indeed, they point out that his conclusion fails to gain support, for instance, in the general context of the epistle to the Hebrews that repeatedly speaks about God's wrath against sin. And you find that in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 12. Repeatedly throughout that whole epistle you find that the writer is writing about God's wrath against sin. The verb hiluskis indicates the removal of divine wrath directed against sin. This is implied in Hebrews 2 verse 17 where the author reveals Christ made like his brothers and sisters is a merciful high priest. The term merciful points to grievous sins his people have committed who consequently have to face the wrath of God. Also the words "faithful high priest in service to God" point to God. Leon Morris remarks, "A Godward aspect expressed by Hilas Komai is likely to include propitiation," to put it mildly. Now let's look at expiation and propitiation in Hebrews 2:17. Many modern theologians have adopted Don's study as a definitive word on translating and explaining the atonement. So once more we go to 2.17. i read it again. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." Scholars choose the noun expiation in place of propitiation because they understand that Christ's sacrifice, recounted in the Epistle to the Hebrews, is aimed at expiating sin but not at propitiating God. In fact, commenting on Hebrews 2, verse 17, Harold Attridge wrote a commentary and he says, quote, In Hebrews, Christ's sacrifice is always directed to removing sin and its effects, not at, a, not at propitiating God. End of quote. I'm going to say it again. In Hebrews, Christ's sacrifice is always directed at removing sin and its effects, not at propitiating God. You know, if you want to bluff somebody, you use the word, Always, all of them do it. I still remember our daughter saying it. Oh, my classmate, Mom. And she stood there and said, and mentioned them. Well, Susie and Mary and no more. See, these words always, all of them, are bluff words. Okay, I'll move on. Similarly, Hugh Montefiore, also a commentator, summarily states, quote, Propitiation is not a biblical concept, but expiation is the motive underly- underlying atonement sacrifice. Expiation is what the high priest was believed to achieve on the Day of Atonement when he expiated the sins of the people. End of quote. What about Jesus hanging on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Will you please explain? Another word is said. And then we have MacLean Wilson, a Scottish theologian, notes that in the Septuagint and the New Testament, quote, the primary meaning is not that of placating or propitiating an angry deity, but of the removal or wiping out of the sins which stand between God and man. End of quote. And last, Paul Ellingworth. I mentioned his name earlier. Remember about that commentary of who knows how many pages? Who discusses propitiation notes that, quote, the most natural sense in Hebrews 2.17 is expiation. End of quote. That's all he says. He finds no justification for the version to make atonement for As the NIV has, or and its marginal note, turn away God's wrath, taking away. End of quote. Certainly, by his death, Christ removed the sins of his people, and by expiating sin, he restored the divine and human relationship that sin had severed. But ignoring the meaning of the concept propitiation is unwarranted. God is the offended party whose anger against sin is evident throughout Scripture. In the Apocalypse John even mentions the wrath of God in <clears throat> Revelation six verse sixteen the wrath wrath of God and of the lamb. In other words, <clears throat> there is no division in the godhead on the matter of wrath against sin. Yet Jesus, through his vicarious death on the cross, eliminates this wrath. C.K. Barrett, a British commentator, New Testament commentator, remarks, quote, It would be wrong to neglect the fact that expiation has, as it were, the effect of propitiation. The sin that might have excited God's wrath is expiated at God's will, and therefore no longer does so. So, he calls attention to propitiation. Continuing, <clears throat> the dispute centers on the translation to make propitiation for the sins of the people, the NASB. For the Greek text demands that the noun sin is the object of the verb, to propitiate. This means that the Greek verb should be translated to make expiation for the sins of the people as the New English Bible has it. It conveys the idea that expiation is made towards sin, not toward God. But scholars who replace the word propitiation with expiation still have to account for God's wrath. Leon Morris gives this explanation of expiation. He says expiation is an impersonal word. One expiates a thing, a sin or a crime, whereas a personal word is needed to describe what Christ has done for his people. And that word is propitiation, even though it is inadequate. Therefore, to find a way out of this difficulty, we suggest that the verb can communicate the sense of both propitiation on the one hand and expiation on the other hand and thus express a double meaning. First, and now I'm referring to <coughs> Leon Morris and John Owen John Owen to the rescue. Here we go. First, to make atonement and reconciliation for sin, appeasing the anger of God against it. And second, to remove and take away sin either by the cleansing and sanctifying of the sinner or by any means prevailing with him not to continue in sin. This is all John Owen speaking. And now we have Leon Morris. This denotes that sin is an affront to God who is rightly offended by it. Yeah, that's sin. See, sin is not missing the mark. Maybe some of you are pool shooters. And then you take that stick and the cue ball and you missed. Or you shoot an arrow at the bullseye and you miss. That's frustration. And some people say, now that's sin. You try, but you miss. No, class, that's not sin. Sin is an affront to God. It's rebellion against God. That's sin. So let's call a spade, a spade. Leon Morris tells us that sin is an affront to God who is rightly offended by it. The removal of sin calls for a sacrifice or similar means to make atonement for appeasing God and for pardoning the sinner. Well said. And now, now we have Frederick Fifey Bruce, F.F. F. Bruce. Quite a New Testament scholar. But here I have to take issue. In a lengthy footnote, F.F. Bruce justifies the translation to make expiation for, and you find that in the Revised Standard Version, and to expiate in the New English Bible, because the direct object of the verb hilaskestai is sins. He notes that in the Greek Bible, this verb is found with a person propitiated as its object, End of quote. But in the Septuagint, there are four or five places where the construction is accusative of person with the plain meaning appease and propitiate. This goes above your head uh, when you pick up the paper, then read it for yourself, okay? In addition, the accusative of the verb hamatias that is, sins, may be taken as an accusative of reference and translated, this is my translation now, with respect to the sins of the people. The use of the accusative of reference or respect even occurs in the immediately preceding clause in respect to things pertaining to God. Uh, You have this Let's see, in order that he might become a faith in the service of God, in respect to the service of God. There you have it, in verse 17. Continuing, the objection which scholars level against the word propitiation is that the writer of Hebrews would incorporate a pagan idea of placating an angry God. He would then turn a loving God into a and whimsical deity who expresses his wrath to people that fail to bring him the required offerings. But Scripture reveals not a God who can be appeased by gifts people offer to him. He is a holy God who expresses his anger against those who sin and persist in sinning. Both the Old and New Testaments teach that God expresses his wrath from heaven. And you find that in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, 9, verse 3, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, and 12, verse 29. And yet it is God who himself, who initiates propitiation by having Jesus Christ turn away divine wrath and take away sin out of love for lost humanity. Now, Paul Jewett who in his lifetime taught at Fuller Seminary, discusses the matter of expiation and propitiation by asking a few penetrating questions. And here they are. He writes, quote, If one reduces the language of Scripture from propitiation to expiation in all instances, he still must answer the question, why should sins be expiated? What would happen if no expiation were provided? Can one deny that, according to the teaching of Scripture, men will die in their sins? He continues, The logical implication of the denial of propitiation as unworthy of God is the teaching that God will ultimately manifest His forgiving love to everyone regardless of how one is related to Christ a point of view that is increasingly the vogue, but one that is contrary to Scripture. End of quote. There is no conflict between love and wrath, for it is God who, in His love for the human race, initiated the process of reconciling us to Himself, even while we were still sinners. Romans 5, verse 8. We are the one who offended him and we should have to make reparations to God. But it was God. Notice how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter five, eighteen. For it was God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Note how it is put. We offended God and we should have gone to God and say, Father, we are sorry. We sinned against you. We grieved you. Please forgive. What we read, says Paul, what we read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18 is that God came to us and reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. He took the initiative. Jesus became the propitiation for us by undergoing God's utter displeasure against sin that he suffered both in Gethsemane and Calvary. Okay, now we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. 5 to 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Okay, there we have it. Now we're going to deal with this text. the writer of of the Epistle to the Hebrews, gradually unfolds the High Priesthood of Christ. First, he mentions that this merciful and faithful High Priest might make atonement for the sins of the people. Okay, that is 2 verse 17. We dealt with it. This is followed by an exhortation to contemplate the significance of this High Priest. 3 verse 1. Then the author calls Jesus a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, but who is able to sympathize with human weakness. Chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. That is, he refers to the Aaronic high priest who sprinkled the blood of a bull for his own sins and after that the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. 5, verse 3. And then he depicts Christ as king and high priest according to the order of Melchizedek 5, verses 5 and 6. At this point, the author of Hebrews pins his one and only reference to Jesus' earthly life by saying, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and who was heard because of his reverent submission. Every part of this verse, 5 verse 7, is significant and meaningful. And now follow me closely, will you? Does the first clause allude to Jesus' entire life, the period of his three years in ministry, or does it refer to the last day of his life? As the sinless one, Jesus suffered all the days of his life this earthly life. And we know from the Gospels that during his ministry he was always subject to verbal abuse. Pharisees and the high priests and the teachers of the law would call him uh, that fellow. They never said his name. That fellow throws out, casts out demons in the name of Beelzebub, which means Satan. But it was during the last 24 hours of his life that he endured spiritual and physical torture. Hence, I suggest that it is prudent to take the third option as the correct one. I do so by noticing that the author of Hebrews draws a parallel and a contrast between the Aaronic High Priest and Jesus. The Aaronic High Priest entered the most holy place of either tabernacle or temple on the Day of Atonement, to atone for his own sins and then for those of the people. 5 verse 3. Likewise, Jesus atoned for the sins of his people during the last night and day of his earthly life. Hence, out of the high priest's life, the writer lifts the most telling event, the atonement. And this holds true not only for any Aaronic priest, but also for Jesus. The highlight in the life of the high priest was that one day of the year when he alone of all humanity might enter the very presence of God to offer the blood of animal sacrifices to atone for sin. Similarly, the author of Hebrews focuses attention on Jesus' last day when he offered up himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and at Calvary for the sacrifice of sin. A few days before his death, Jesus met some Greeks who were among those who had come to worship at the Passover feast. He intimated that the hour of his agony was fast approaching when he said, quote, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour John 12:27 end of quote This passage in John 12:27 is called little Gethsemane for it points forward to Jesus suffering in the garden of Gethsemane as you find it in Matthew 26 Mark 14 and Luke 22 there in the garden, he told Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, quote, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And when he went away from them, he prayed, quote, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Matthew 28, verses 38-39, end of quote. The cup refers to God's anger with human sin that became reality at Gethsemane when Christ bearing the sins of his people faced divine wrath. Quote: God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5:21. And what you also find in Isaiah 53, verse 6, is the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. As a sin bearer, Jesus was separated from his God, so Isaiah writes prophetically, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. This is found in Isaiah 59, verse 2. Consequently, Jesus experienced God's holy wrath directed against him because of sin, for this wrath caused a severance between God and the bearer of human sin. Now we continue on. Now it comes to the point. Already in the garden, Jesus' suffering was so acute that he feared he might die. Luke reports that God sent an angel to strengthen him. But after the arrival of the angel, Jesus' spiritual and physical agony became increasingly severe to the degree that his subcutaneous capillary, capillaries, thank you, Capillaries oozed blood which mingled with his perspiration, Luke 22:44, And this happened during a night which was so chilly that the soldiers had lit a fire in the high priest's courtyard to keep themselves warm. Matthew and Luke and Mark report this. At Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to God by addressing Him as Abba Father, Mark fourteen thirty six, And Matthew specified that He prayed twice as He called upon His God as Father, Matthew 26, 42. The bond between Father and Son remained intact even though God did not remove the cup. This cup may be interpreted as a cup of wrath. Jesus knew that he had to face the cross where he would suffer both spiritually and physically. Jesus' prayers and petitions did not end at Gethsemane. He continued to address his father from the cross. The garden is actually the prelude to the suffering that Jesus had to endure at Calvary. Of the seven Words spoken from the cross. The first and the last were prayers addressed to his father. Interesting. Note the first one. Father forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. That's number one. Number seven. Father into your hand. I commit my spirit. Three evangelists. Record that Jesus cried out with a loud voice just before he gave up his spirit. And two of them also note his calling out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now note, number one, Father forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Number seven, Father into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's the last word. And the fourth one, right in the middle. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not Father, but my God. And you can say, well, that is obviously Psalm 24, uh, 22, excuse me, Psalm 22, verse 1. Yes, I know, and Jesus knew it too. But I'm interested now in that word forsaken. Although the evangelists do not mention tears, they are clear about Jesus' loud cries from the the cross. And the author of Hebrews alludes to these loud cries for he had in mind Jesus' suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane and at Calvary's cross. And there's more. He writes that Jesus prayed to the one who could save him from death. Jesus addressed his first and last words from the cross to his father, but the fourth one he addressed to God. Quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Note that the address is not to his father, but to God who had turned his face away from the suffering servant. Jesus faced God's anger and displeasure directed against Him because He bore the burden of sin and accepted His people's penalty. What did the writer of Hebrews mean when he wrote that Jesus asked God to save Him from death? For Jesus, physical death was an unavoidable certainty when the crowds called for His crucifixion and Pilate handed Him handed him over to the soldiers. John 19. But he had told his disciples more than once that he would rise from the dead on the third day. If Jesus' death on the cross was limited to his physical suffering, he would be like many others who had undergone similar punishment. The criminals on the left and on the right of him suffered the same torture. Jesus, however, suffered a spiritual as well as a physical death, for this becomes evident when God abandons him. If Jesus had only died a physical death, nothing would have been accomplished. But on Calvary's cross, he died a spiritual death when he experienced the full measure of divine anger against sin. He died spiritually to appease God and to satisfy the divine demand for justice. We will never be able to understand Jesus' cry, Why have you forsaken me? Although Jesus' faith in God remained strong, he knew that he had been abandoned for being the one who bore the sins of the people. The fourth word from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is indeed a hard saying for it touches on the person of Christ and the Trinity. Can the Father forsake his Son? Leon Morris admits that he, quote, would find the situation much more tolerable if these words did not stand in the record. End of quote. Now, you could say, take them out. (laughs) No, liberals may do that, but conservatives and evangelicals do not. But the gospel writers have recorded them and the author of Hebrews hints at them. On the cross Jesus bore for us the penalty of our sins, namely our spiritual separation from God. German theologian, Zacharias of asked the question, what do you understand by the word suffered? And this is how he answered. Quote, that during His whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This He did in order that, by His suffering as the atoning sacrifice, He might set us free, body and soul, from eternal damnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. End of quote. What Jesus suffered on Calvary's cross for us was spiritual death when he quoted the words from Psalm 21, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by God because of our sin, Jesus suffered a spiritual death when he had no help from God or mankind. The demand of the crowd directed to Pontius Pilate to crucify him was being fulfilled. The people assembled in front of the Roman governor called on God to curse his son because anyone who is hung on a tree, that is a cross, is under God's curse. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 21:23. The high priest knew what they were doing. Crucify him, Pontius Pilate, and then God's curse will rest upon him. Well, they were prophetic. Indeed, God's curse was resting upon Jesus. Thus, when Jesus experienced the curse of God during which every trace of divine grace was removed, he actually descended into hell. That's a good interpretation of that one clause in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. That is, God forsook him at the cross when Jesus, forsaken by God, experienced hellish death agony. Consequently, on the cross, His spiritual death preceded His physical death. Note this. I'll say it again. On the cross, His spiritual death, being forsaken by God the Father, preceded His physical death. He died a spiritual death prior to His natural death. Jesus suffered what John in his his Apocalypse calls The second death. Revelation 2, 11, 20, verse 6, and so on. The second death means to be spiritually cut off from God. Christ died this death for His people so that they would not be hurt by the second death and would never be forsaken by God. That is, Jesus... On the cross, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Died for you and me spiritually, so that you would never, no never, be forsaken by God. Satan and his followers are consigned to suffer this second death, but all of Christ's followers are exempt because he himself suffered abandonment for for the sake of his people now why did christ have to suffer death the answer is god's justice and truth demanded only the death of god's son could pay for our sins surely god is a god of love and grace who could have set sinners free from the consequences of their sin in the parable of the wedding banquet, King demonstrates his love towards his guests by inviting them to the feast. But he also shows his wrath toward those guests who spurn him and then includes the one who refused to wear the wedding clothes. Jesus concludes the parable with the words, For many are invited, but few are chosen. Matthew 22, verse 14. If God should only show love and not wrath, His justice would never be served. God's grace and justice go hand in hand in the epistle to the Hebrews. For instance, believers are urged to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Hebrews 4:16. And in that same epistle, the references to the judge and judgment are these: <clears throat> Eternal judgment awaits those who to re- who you... again. Eternal ju- Hold on, it's lack of a drink. Eternal judgment awaits those who reject God and continue to practice sin. Six, verses one and two. The sequence of death and judgment is spelled out, 9 verse 27. And last, God is the judge of all people, 12 verse 23. Both the love of God and the justice of God are the two scales that are kept in perfect equilibrium. In the one scale is God's love to the world by giving it his only one and only son, John 3:16 and in the other is God's justice with the demand that his son bear the full penalty for the people's sin. <clears throat> Philip Hughes writes as follows quote: "In Christ, the Son of man and only lawkeeper dying in the place of man, the lawbreaker, the justice and love of God prevail together. End of quote. Well put. <clears throat> if this exegesis of the word death is correct, the clause, the one who could save him from death, takes on a more profound meaning in Hebrews 5, 7. Having suffered both a spiritual death and a physical death on the cross, Jesus sets his people free from their fear of death. Indeed, the writer of Hebrews notes that Jesus by his death destroyed Satan who holds the power of death and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 2 verse 15. The death that human beings face is both physical and spiritual. Always remember that. Both. Both. Spiritual death is eternal for those who are apart from Christ and face God's judgment. Hebrews 9.27 For them nothing is left but a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10.27 Believers, however, are acquitted because Christ has borne God's judgment for them from the fear, to set them free from the fear of eternal death. <clears throat> now, the Greek term, Thanatos, let me put it on the board for you. <clears throat> thanatos. There it is. The Greek word. Thanatos, death, occurs nine times in Hebrews, of which most of them refer to physical death. There are quite a number. But the words held in slavery by fear of death in 2.15 allude to the spiritual death of Christ. Philip Hughes notes, quote, The death that man fears, moreover, is not just the physical death that he faces, it is the second death, The fact that after death there is judgment. And he refers to Revelation 2 verse 11 and 20 verse 6 and 21 verse 6. That is, because of sin we were condemned to die a spiritual death and be eternally separated from God. But Christ took our place and died an eternal death for us on the cross when God abandoned him. He underwent death to destroy Satan who held the power of death first to liberate those enslaved by the devil Hebrews 2 verse 14 and 15 and second to nullify their spiritual death sentence. In the Apocalypse, John points out that as the saints bask in God's eternal light and of the Lamb Revelation 21, 22 verse 5 They will never experience the eternal darkness that those who die a second death suffer and are forever cut off from the living God. Christ died this second death for his people and set them free. The author of Hebrews writes that Jesus appealed, quote, to the one who could save him from death, end of quote. The emphasis is on the verb to save, which conveys the meaning of divine deliverance. At the cross, bystanders ridiculing Jesus use this word by taunting him three different times. One, quote, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Next, number two. He saved himself, but he can't save himself. And three, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. All this is found in Matthew 27, verses 40, 42, and 49. In the same way, one of the crucified criminals said, save yourself and us, Luke 23, 39. The concept save, however, has a deeper meaning than sparing someone's physical life. Jesus saved the other criminal by, who repented and he saved him, not physically but spiritually. Jesus cried, Father save me from this hour, John 12:27 pointed to the agony of a dying, of dying a spiritual and physical death on the cross to set his people free. The words... From death, therefore, refer not to deliverance from this imminent death on the cross, but rather that God brings to an end both the spiritual and physical death of Jesus. And our quote, this comes by way of Richard Gaffin of Westminster Seminary in his book Redemptive History and Biblical Interpretation. And the quote actually comes from Gerhardus Voss, who in the late... 19th century taught at the Princeton Theological Seminary. And this is what Voss has to say. Quote, The prayers and supplications which he is sent to have offered up were not that he might be saved from death, but that he might be saved out of it. End of quote. The author of Hebrews completes verse 7 of chapter 5 with the clause and he was heard because of his reverent submission. There's 5 verse 7. The use of the passive voice implies that Jesus addressed God who heard him and responded positively to his request. This response was based on And the result of his reverence demonstrated in his complete surrender to God when he on the cross obediently fulfilled his mediatorial role. The writer of Hebrews adds that Jesus was heard and received what he asked for, namely, not to escape from death, but to gain salvation for his people through and out of spiritual and physical death. An older interpretation that understands Christ being heard in that he feared, the King James Version, with respect to his death, goes against the author's intent. The Greek word ulabea means not a state of being afraid but an attitude of devout reverence which the Vulgate translates as, in Latin, pro sua reverentia, which it means, in translation, in consideration of His veneration. Because Christ's reverent regard for God's honored justice, and rule, God responded to Him. Jesus directed His prayers and petitions to His Father in heaven, and they were granted Him because He was fulfilling God's will by obediently accomplishing the work entrusted to Him. God answers prayer when it is offered in obedience to His commands and in accordance with His will. 1 John 3.22 But how do we understand the positive statement He was heard when Jesus had to suffer death? The answer is that God forsook Him briefly during the three hours of darkness when Jesus was separated from God. Matthew 27.45 But he rescued Jesus from spiritual death when he restored the relationship between Father and Son. And he saved him from physical death when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And now, the conclusion. We still face the question how the person of Christ and the Trinity fit into the exegesis of Hebrews 5, verse 7. How do we explain the two natures of Christ in respect to his suffering in the garden and at the cross? If Jesus knew everything ahead of time, then on, in the garden of Gethsemane, he could say, well, Father, I know that you're taking this cup away anyhow. You know, I have nothing to fear. And on the cross, he could say, well, I'm going to die physically and spiritually. But, you know, I'll be raised from the dead anyhow. How? Do you explain the humanity and the divinity of Jesus in respect, with respect to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I answer, with a sin darkened mind, we are unable to understand where the human and the divine natures meet in Christ. See, every time, I'll take a moment out, every time you talk about human and divine coming closer and closer together, you have to say, in all honesty, this is a mystery. Okay, let's talk about Jesus for just a moment. Jesus said to the woman at the well, you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. You live in common law. I know it. How did he know that? Had he listened to the news? Had he read the uh, newspaper? Did somebody tell him? No, he was all alone. And the woman responds, Sir, you must be a prophet. Now there's Jesus. And we go on to chapter 11. And Jesus is at the grave of Lazarus. And we read in verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, look, if Jesus knows everything ahead of time, he knew that he would pray to his father and then say, Lazarus, come out! And why would he weep? Control your emotions. And there's the human and the divine. Okay, we take scripture Scripture is God's word. Okay, all of us are agreed. Scripture was written by human beings. Are there mistakes? You know, when you say divine, that's perfect. And now you say human. Are there errors in Scripture? Hmm? I'll give you one. Blind Bartimaeus. And Jesus was leaving Jericho. And now you go to Luke. And Luke writes, and Jesus was entering Jericho. Healing the same blind man. Now, how do you explain? That's obviously an error, isn't it? Ron says, no. And I agree. you learned something okay Matthew and Mark are Jews and they talk about the Jewish uh, Jericho and an eighth of a mile away was Roman Jericho Luke is writing about Roman Jericho Because he is always interested in administrative centers. As you go through the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, you will find that Luke is interested in Roman administrative centers. So, Jesus, according to Matthew and Mark, Jewish people, he was leaving old Jericho and according to Luke, he is entering new Jericho. That's the end. But nevertheless, there is that of the divine and human in scripture now salvation salvation is the work of the triune God we can't save a person and then Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and the verb work out means do it thoroughly. It's a compound verb. Kater gazumai. Do it thoroughly. Now, is that your work? Well, again, the human and the divine. Whenever they come close together, we have to honestly say we are facing a mystery. Frank? Right? Uh, Dr. Kiesemager, my question is and- perhaps there's no answer to this, even as the God-man uh, Jesus somehow is separated from his Father because he's suffering spiritual death, but because he is the Son of God, ontologically he can't be separated from right. the Father right. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. So mm-hmm. okay. what would you say Yeah. The question is, what do we do with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? These three cannot ontologically be separated from each other. True. My answer is, with our sin-darkened mind, we are unable to understand where the human and the divine natures meet in Christ. This aspect will remain a mystery to God's people here on earth. We'll never know. The same mystery is true when we try to understand how within the Trinity the Father forsakes the Son and yet loves Him. We don't know. And there's nothing wrong, class. There's nothing wrong when you and your ministry have to say to the people, I don't know. Own up to it. Don't try to cover up and say, well, after all, I'm the pastor, I'm supposed to. No, be honest and say, I don't know. And then you can add, and I'm not alone in saying this. The last paragraph, and then I'm finished. John Calvin, here's Uncle John, asserts, quote, we do not admit that God was ever hostile with him or angry with him. For how could he be angry with his beloved Son in whom his soul delighted? Or how could Christ, by his intercession, appease the Father for others if the Father were incensed against him? But we affirm that he sustained the weight Of the divine severity since being smitten and afflicted of God, Isaiah 53, 4, he experienced from God all the tokens of wrath and vengeance, end of quote. You find that in Calvin's Institutes, volume 1, page 565. Two more paragraphs, hang on, I'm almost there. The difference between the Aaronic high priest and Jesus the great high priest is unique and insuperable. Aaron and his successors offered animal sacrifices as substitutes for humans. But as a God-man, Jesus offered himself. All these high priests died a natural death. But Jesus died a physical and spiritual death as a substitute for his people. All of them were never able to remove the fear of death, but Jesus removed the fear of death once for all. Also, Jesus, as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, fulfilled the Aaronic priesthood by bringing it to an end. And last, Aaron and those who followed him in the high priestly office performed their duties in the inner room of the tabernacle or temple. Jesus performed his high priestly duty in full view of the people by hanging on the cross. Quote, But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. End of quote, Hebrews 9, 26. Jesus is indeed our atoning sacrifice the Lamb of God, he took away the sin of the world, John 1, 9, 1 verse 29, and he took upon himself the wrath of God against sin, but dying spiritually and physically for his people. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated, in part or in whole, for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.